So, welcome to the Bailey. This is the show where actually it's Phoebophilia. I'm your host, Yassine Masood, and today's topic is going to be the intersection of neurodiversity and the culture war. As a starting point, we will focus on an article pu- published in Quillette titled The Neurodiversity Case for Free Speech. We should probably first explain what neurodiversity means. Neurodiversity is the politically correct term for basically any form of mental weirdness, mostly every type of mental illness that exists, but also there are some vague things that don't show up in the DSM and still end up under neurodiversity. So when you say mental weirdness, do you want to be more specific? I I mean, I I read Wikipedia, so I'm an expert. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, go ahead and clarify. (laughs) Well, so it's a variety of uh, symptoms, and there's potentially some difficulty in properly cataloging it because it's a myriad of different symptoms that are ostensibly related. So it can include difficulty communicating, consistent need for stimulus, uh, an affinity for repetitive behavior. And there's also a colloquial understanding of the term neurodivergent, mostly used under the, the specter of autism where pretty much anyone that's socially awkward is deemed autistic. And that's not necessarily, you know, medically accurate, but that is the kind of the social definition du jour as it, as it applies in colloquial conversations. Autism tends to take center stage, and that's what the author of the article focused on. I think he mostly focused on that because he is pretty aspy. I don't know if he has a formal diagnosis and also those are the sorts of people who tend to be the ones uh, getting canceled. So, I mean, the other background is autism as a diagnosis has been more prevalent uh, in recent years. There's different theories as to why. Now, nowadays, like the, the estimate is around 1% to 2% of the population. It tends to be more prevalent among males, uh, typically four times as prevalent as uh, compared to women. Maybe the theory that is most prevalent is that diagnoses have just gotten better. That and I think it's just society has become more accepting of people who are different. It used to be that there was only certain personality types that people could have, largely based on gender. And if you didn't fit into these predefined categories, you were automatically regarded as the weird one. And I like to think that society has moved away from that. And I think it's been for the better. The idea being that Society used to put a lot more pressure on autistic people to not act so autistic, and now that they're free to express themselves more accurately, that leads to them getting more diagnosed. This is a good time as any to introduce the ideas of Thomas Saz. The best way to describe him is that he represents kind of the extreme libertarian position in psychiatry, where he advocates for essentially accepting people's quirks as quirks instead of pathologizing them into psychiatric deficiencies. There's a lot of, throughout human history, you have, you probably have had a lot of mental illnesses that has manifested, but instead of being recognized as an illness, it was potentially dismissed as a personality quirk or uh, demonic possession or some other explanation that didn't necessarily have a ready, readily available cure. Uh, so, in should we go around alphabetically. My name's Jeff. I'm a software engineer in San Francisco. And my position on the neurodiversity stuff is that 
I read the neurodiversity case for free speech and recognized myself a lot in there because I've gotten in trouble for saying things that I thought were totally benign and turns out they weren't. I don't I don't really understand people, but I think if not for being a software engineer, having some success there, I, I'd probably have a, a much harder time in life. So I, I mostly agree with, with what Jeffrey Miller is saying, where if you clamp down on on speech in the way that a lot of colleges and other organizations are doing right now, you really hurt the sorts of people who come up with some crazy ideas, but also some really good ideas. Okay. I'm Master Thief. Uh, I am a lawyer by training. I currently live and work in Austin, Texas. Uh, I am always a fan of free speech, especially on college campuses. I worked at a uh, major university for about uh, 15 years and not in one of the fun tenure jobs, one of the uh, back office ones where I had to deal a lot with students and student discipline. Um, that and I have many, many friends uh, who are on uh, the autism spectrum. I've come to um, value them and their, their different perspectives and anything that, that stands in the way of the self-expression, particularly this, uh, I, I would say the misguided, that all diversities are equal, but some are more equal than others. And if somebody's minor diversity gets in the way of a major diversity, then then they come down, clamp down you. And I've really, really just had deep philosophical objections to that line of thinking. I'm 93. I'm a software programmer in Ontario, Canada. And my position on this is basically that it's hard to articulate a principled stance where you carve out some sort of exemption for autistic people from the normal rules of polite society, basically, without granting that exception to anyone that wants to claim it. And the whole point of having rules is that we can't, we have to enforce them against someone. And so I am probably going to be taking the contrarian stance that actually autistic people ought to play by the same rules as everyone else. So I'm Yasin. I definitely don't consider myself neurodivergent. However, by reading through the article in Jeffrey Miller, I did see significant amount of similarity between my experience as an immigrant to the United States. I moved from my native country at the age of 10, which is relatively advanced uh, comparatively. Uh, and so I've had to deal with try, essentially trying to figure out how to act in these new social dynamics. I never had any formal education or training in order to assimilate in that manner. So it was a lot of confusion and just absent-mindedness. I didn't understand why people did the things that they did or for what purpose. Okay, so the neurodiversity case for free speech is written by Jeffrey Miller. He's a, I believe he's an evolutionary psychologist at University of New Mexico. And his whole point about this is he gives the thought experiment of Isaac Newton. So Isaac Newton, back in the day, was a weird dude, a very disagreeable person. He had all kinds of crazy ideas about alchemy and predicting the end of the world. But he also came up with calculus and the laws of motion and optics. And so if you took Newton, that, that person, that weird person from the 1600s, and put him in, say, Harvard today, or a college campus today, 
he would almost certainly not be able to do all of the science stuff that he did because he would accidentally say something that would ruin his career. Jeffrey Miller's whole point is that these speech codes on modern campuses, they cause more damage than you would first think because they they censor the types of people who are most productive uh, and the people who are most productive are often the types of people who are just weird in certain ways. And they're weird in some ways, but they're also weird in very useful ways. But you're not going to, you can't have one without the other. So these campus codes just cause a, a, a just a giant stifling of science. So I think the use of Newton as an example was interesting because, as you mentioned, his interests were alchemy and trying to divine various prophecies, essentially, from reading obscure bits of the Bible and assigning meaning them meaning to them through basically Kabbalah, only the Christian-flavored version of it. And like those were completely worthless pursuits. If someone had managed to slap some sense into him, then we could have alternatively gotten twice as much progress in math and the actually useful stuff that Newton worked on. Like this isn't this is only talking about one example, and it's 400 years old, so neither of us should really be using it to make the argument, but just an interesting weakness of using Isaac Newton in support there. Can you think of a better example to Harold? Well, Richard Stallman, who came up on our podcast a couple of episodes ago, is pretty plausibly a guy who is just way too weird to fit in at most places today. I might argue that he's wasting some effort in terms of his commitment to only using free software, but he's definitely not wasting 20 years of his life on alchemy. Well, in the article itself, it goes over uh, a lot of uh, scientists, philosophers who have been given biological, uh, uh, given their biographical records uh, were on the autism or Asperger spectrum. Uh, philosophers like Jeremy Bentham, uh, the writer Lewis Carroll, Ab Albert Einstein, uh, Glenn Gould, the pianist, uh, uh, film directors like Stanley Kubrick, uh, Mark Twain, um, uh, Alan Turing, Ishi Wells, a whole bunch of people. I was curious about that list because I didn't I didn't really understand where it was sourced from. It appears to be a diagnosis, you know, decades after the fact, based on publicly available behavior. Yeah, that that's 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 basically that's basically what what he brought up was the autism spectrum page and a lot of people uh, who had been sort of retro retroactively diagnosed based on biographical and recorded traits, nothing uh, formally diagnosed, which is. I guess something that psychiatrists kind of have a hobby of, um, but, you know, maybe take it with a grain of salt. This seems to be a manifestation of uh, the Goldwater rule that ethically prohibits uh, psychiatrists from making diagnoses unless they have a specific patient relationship with the individual. Yeah, yeah, which which happened for a very good reason. Um, I, I think just like there's no libeling of the dead, uh, there is no misdiagnosing of the dead. And the Goldwater rule for people that don't know, it was, I guess it was constructed after Barry Goldwater's presidential candidacy in the United States, where approximately, you know, several hundred psychiatrists signed a letter that they believed that he was unfit to be a president 
due to his demeanor, or at least his publicly seen de- demeanor. APA promulgated a, a rule against that because I think understandably. Did they diagnose him with anything in particular, or just? They said he met all the he met all the symptoms for you know it's like narcissism or something like that that he uh, could not be trusted with command of the military and command of nuclear weapons. Uh, after the election, uh, Barry Goldwater actually filed and won a libel suit against the magazine that had published that, which is at darn near impossible for a public figure to do unless the uh, publication really, really was saying something terrifically untrue. So it was a, it was a, it was a bit of a, it was not just um, correcting an injustice. I think it was the APA uh, trying to be a little bit more careful and circumspect, particularly when jumping into politics. Right. So this whole topic is kind of a an outgrowth of the Stallman episode, where one of Jeff's primary thesis was that if you, I guess, clamp down on eccentric behavior, then you run the risk of running people out of the industry because innovation thrives on eccentricism. Yeah, you lose a lot of potential value is what I would say, yeah. Uh, there was uh, there was Kenji Yoshino, who's a law professor at Yale, uh, and he proposed uh, covering as a term. He, uh, Yoshino uh, is gay, and that's what he felt that he had to do, that he had to conceal certain portions of who he was in order to fully participate. So I guess it could be uh, considered a, a kind of uh, covering for yourself, covering something that would not be would be considered abnormal. Yeah. So reading through the Jeffrey Miller piece, he the basic thesis is that when you create these very strict environments where rules are not necessarily uniformly enforced and there's a lot of nuance and subtlety, then you risk alienating people that are neurodivergent or have difficulty understanding social cues. I would add that you also make them because neurodivergent people tend to be worse at predicting the responses of others. They have poor theory of mind in general, that these neurodivergent people tend to be much more risk averse about what they will say because they can't predict accurately if something they say is going to cause an uproar or not. So they just have to be very, very risk averse and and try and say almost nothing that is, is anywhere close to what they think could, could cause offense. So I'll, I'll come back to, I mean, I still thought of um, immigrants as like a good candidate for fitting this concern, but first I want to see, I want to hear from 93 because you mentioned how you weren't a fan necessarily of this article because it felt like rules lawyering. The thing that I said was that it seems like it's an attempt to rules lawyer politically correct people into accepting politically incorrect statements. And given that those people value political correctness, they recognize what's going on and have not bought it. I think it's fundamentally kind of a silly exercise because they know what they want and they're going to continue to act in order to get it. And what they want in this case is for no one to say politically incorrect things. And if that's what you want, then whether or not the person saying them is autistic doesn't really factor into it. So I'm inclined to agree with that position because it does seem like Jeffrey Miller is, at least his intended audience is so uh, people who would consider themselves social justice warriors. And my understanding of his thesis is that he's trying to put them into a bind by saying, oh, you, you care about minorities? Then, then how about these minorities? And if you are willing to you know, 
affirm that you do care about their concerns, then you are then you are obligated to accept my uh, arguments against the uh, speech codes on campus. And it doesn't seem to be very persuasive for a variety of reasons. I mean, we joked about this in previous episodes where we said that autists aren't real disabled, where potentially there could be other explanations, but potentially one of them is that someone that is considered on the autism spectrum isn't necessarily taken as seriously as a minority as other traditionally heralded marginalized groups. I think what Miller is saying is not to get rid of speech codes, but to in the way that you have, say, ramps for people who are in wheelchairs, you would have assistive technologies for autistic or Aspie people or neurodivergent people who need to understand these speech codes. That is, you have to sort of translate these these sort of general wishy-washy rules into something more concrete that that they can understand. That doesn't necessarily mean getting rid of the codes, but it does mean fleshing out exactly what you mean. And I think his his hope is that these rules will be so obviously inconsistent when spelled out in detail that people will give up. I I seriously doubt that will be the case, though. So that that's part of what comes off as uh, disingenuous for Miller, because I, I'm suspicious of his true claim because he does. It, it appears that he's trying to, um, in a way, concern troll his way into having everyone kind of be logically bound to accept his uh, position on on speech codes. Now, I admit that that's probably uncharitable, but I, I also don't see how else to interpret it because the way he structures it is that it's, it becomes a virtual impossibility to have speech codes that would accommodate. Uh, neurodivergent people, but it doesn't even seem to be that that's like the primary goal because his his primary purpose, as far as I've seen, is to highlight the this this uh, to highlight the dissonant nature of these codes to begin with. Oh, I would agree that he's definitely against these codes. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's without question. But but I guess the 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 difference is like whether he actually cares about accommodating neurodivergent people or just they they just happen to be a convenient counterfactual. Uh, I think he does care about accommodating neurodivergent people because I think he talked about it on a podcast that was linked to. He he said when he started dealing with the, the like the politics of the university he works at, he was on some council. He would start asking questions, and in the podcast, he claims he was genuinely curious and not just trying to rile people up. But he got a lot of pushback from everybody else because of the questions he was asking. So I think he just wants to make the world a little less uh, confusing for himself. Uh, and if and if that means pure speech codes, then also he seems in favor of that. Uh, he, had a bit at, he had a bit at the end of the first article about uh, approaching this as an Americans with Disabilities Act claim. Uh, for those of you who don't know the Americans with Disabilities Act, if you are, if you have a, uh, a disability in the United States, an employer, an educational institution is required to give you uh, what's called a reasonable accommodation, uh, you know, ex- exceptions from various rules, like, you know, people with, uh, with mobility disorders, that's got to be wheelchair accessible, um, you know, note takers for people who are uh, deaf or blind, uh, various, various accommodations. What he's wanting to do is basically use the ADA, which is something that a lot of these social justice warriors would be very much in favor of, to attack speech codes itself. 
Yeah, we'll see how far that goes. Uh, the the corollary situation I, I want to describe is the college admission scandal kind of highlighted an issue where one of the accommodations that you can get if you're deemed disabled is extra time. And there's an understanding, at least within families that have the resources to shop around to different mental health professionals, there's an understanding that if you don't get that accommodation, you're essentially a fool because you get up to 50% more time and that could potentially help you significantly compared to others that do not receive that accommodation. For many years, the testing authorities would put an asterisk next to the name or at least next to the score of someone that received that accommodation, but then they were sued and they removed that asterisk. So now it's indistinguishable from the general population. Wow. Is this for SATs? Yeah, SATs, ACTs, and I believe whatever. I don't remember exactly which um, standardized testing it was, but definitely one, at least one of the big ones. Pretty smart of those parents, honestly. Yeah, but it does highlight kind of, I don't even know. like. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's this fucked upness of how easy you could abuse this stuff. It was attempting to use neurodiversity to game the system. I would say that these are slightly different cases. Uh, the the people who are trying to get their kids into school is based on these, you know, I'll, I'll just come out and call them fraudulent SAT scores. They were looking for a private benefits, whereas folks like Miller, who are attacking campus speech codes, they're not seeking a private benefit. They think that speech codes are stupid and, and should should be uh, gotten rid of for everyone, neuro, uh, neurodiverse or not. Yeah. And just to be clear, I'm, I'm fully in favor of you know, I'm, I'm generally a free speech maximalist, so I don't want any of my arguments to be misconstrued as supporting free speech codes. I just take issue with the, the line of arguments that they use, because it also reminds me of uh, people that say that they identify as an attack helicopter when it comes to announcing their pronouns or their gender. They hide behind this veneer of authenticity, whereas it tends to be pretty obvious like what you're actually trying to do. And with regards to uh, using the ADA to protect yourself from the enforcement of these speech codes by declaring yourself to be a neuro-minority can be abused, quote-unquote, to the same extent as the other situations we describe. So we can see, for example, someone that just wants to be an instigator, rile people up, and proclaim unpopular or controversial political opinions for the sake of controversy, not necessarily because they genuinely believe it, and then hiding behind the claim that they're neuro-minority and should be afforded greater leeway in that area. Well, I, th- I think Miller's argument kind of works as a, um, as a reductio ad absurdum on the absurdity of campus uh, policing speech codes itself. Uh, I, I think just taken for that, for that limited purpose as an attack tool, I think it's, it's absolutely fantastic. But I'm, I'm starting to come around uh, to your point that it, it, it's really you know, there's, there's, there's not much substance behind it. Well, I, I would say that, I mean, I've, I've met Jeffrey Miller a couple of times in person and talked to him and he seems like a, the type of person who is just very, very straightforward. And I, I think most of the time his behavior is, is just as, as honest as when, the things that he's saying are usually the things that he means. And he doesn't have an ulterior motive. He, he is pretty aspy. I will give you that. Like he, he usually just tries to apply the rules uh, uh, consistently, and sometimes it comes off as as 
as having some weird ulterior motive. That said, it's really easy to ascribe other motives to him if you ever just like if you ever just look at his Twitter because he's he's a bit of an asshole on Twitter. <laughs> Who is so? It? <laughs> I'm I'm not I'm nice. <laughs> it's important to note though that I think everyone on this podcast is basically in agreement that speech codes are dumb and if we think he plausibly has ulterior motives then the people who perceive him as attacking them will definitely see that and this explains a significant part of why they aren't eager to take him up on his proposals yeah i agree the backlash to this article is crazy yeah yeah so let's talk about that uh so you mentioned go ahead jeff like i forgot the guy's name rod i don't know how to pronounce it Rod Vag, maybe? He's Australian. I have only seen his name written and I've never seen it or heard it pronounced. So Rod Vag tweeted this article and from what I remember reading the tweet, I, I think it's been since deleted, but he tweeted yes. the article with the same demeanor of someone saying, hey, this is an interesting article. Who wants to discuss it? And he received severe backlash. So tell us more about that. Yeah, I think this was in mid-2017. He tweeted a link to the Quillette article, the Neurodiversity Case for Free Speech, and he said something about how this could also be applied to codes of conduct in open source software. Rod Vag was, he might still be, on the Technical Steering Committee for Node.js, which is a very popular... Uh, Not anymore. He left in February. Oh, uh, oh, wait. Oh, he left. Okay. I thought you were saying not anymore, not popular. I was like, oh, no. damn, shots fired, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what the fuck Node.js is. Uh, but he's not that... hes not involved in it. He left in February of this year. Oh, okay. Got it. So, well, I guess he, he stuck around for like over a year afterwards. So Yeah, and I, and I commend him survived for that. The storm. Yeah. I read the storm. I read the kind of his statement and this the principal stance that he took is commendable. Yeah, yeah. I was very impressed by that. Wait, can you summarize but, exactly the kind of pushback that he received and what codes of conducts are? Oh, man. Okay. So, so yeah, he tweeted a link to the article. He got a lot of pushback, a lot of people saying, oh, how could you, you know, this is, this is very offensive that you're questioning the need for codes of conduct. And some of the other people on uh, which Node.js committee was it? Anyway, there's a technical steering committee, which is like, all technical, all they care about is like what technologies to implement and software architectures and future of the project and nothing to do with any social stuff. And he's on that committee. And a different committee tried to uh, of Node.js tried to get him basically like kick him off the project. And I think they, the, the vote to kick him off failed and four people resigned from the Node.js project in protest of his not getting fired, not getting kicked off. And, and and then eventually, you know, it's like every internet thing after a week or so, it kind of fades away and everybody forgets about it. I bet if you just Google his name, like Rod Vag, you'll probably find the top results are probably all related to this crazy, this crazy kerfuffle. So I think part of the reason why I read Miller's piece with some suspicion is because there, there's so many other demographics that you could apply this concern to. Uh, and maybe, you know, plausibly, he writes about 
people that are neurodivergent because he himself is neurodivergent. But myself, I, I thought about kind of all the myriad of issues that come up in within social justice circles about how the need to accommodate minorities, marginalized groups often buds head with this generalized inclusivity mission. So for, I mean, the obvious example is uh, homophobia within Islamic communities and how, I don't know how activists try to square that because it it's, it's pretty, <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how I don't know how activists try to accommodate that. Uh, there does also appear to be a higher than average disdain or a higher than average anti-Semitism within Black communities. Uh, you can kind of highlight so many other issues that that prop up where uh, a marginalized community will doesn't necessarily face extra scrutiny, even though they have some problematic uh, uh, stances. So one. Um, the one that I'm most familiar with is because I grew up uh, Muslim. And so part of my experience in moving to the United States was getting acquainted and acclimated with uh, this, this new setting, these new rules and trying to find the uh, space within that. Because I moved here when I was 10 years old through something known as the diversity visa lottery. My family came here unexpectedly. And so we didn't really have any time to prepare. We happened to actually be on a summer vacation when we got the news that we won the immigration lottery and we were on a summer vacation in the United States. So we canceled our flight back to native country and essentially just had to stay here because our immigration lawyer told us that if we really were serious about making it in the United States, then the best thing to do is to just stay here and deal with the immigration bureaucracy directly instead of the American embassy back in our home country, because they tend to be understaffed relatively. So, Three weeks after we found out these news, I, I started uh, public school and kind of had to find my own way within it. And kind of right away, I was bullied and made fun of. And I didn't really understand why, because it, I was kind of transgressing these rules that I, that seemed completely irrational to me. Uh, one example was, at least as a kid, uh, like we used to wear the same clothes every day and, you know, like wash it after a week. But when I moved to the United States, this was seen as a severe transgression and people would call me like dirty and um, unkempt or whatever. And I quickly adjusted. But, you know, even today as an adult, I'm not going to wash my clothes after wearing it once. So it does appear to be kind of like this facade that we put up in order to appease this concern that people don't don't really care about. When I When I was reading the Miller piece, I kept thinking about how so many people that find themselves within marginalized communities don't necessarily have the knowledge or the expertise to be intensely aware of exactly how to not transgress these uh, speech codes. And they kind of have a similar concern as people that find themselves neuro neurodivergent. And even though like people, act at least activists, are well aware of that concern, it doesn't seem to be much of a bulwark against implementing speech codes. It's just kind of quietly ignored. So if it's quietly ignored within those marginalized communities, I don't see why it would make much headway within neurodivergent communities, because it doesn't seem like much is, is different. One of the things that's always frustrated me about the social justice movement is that you go and people like, 
who get called out, they raise us or so what's the standards? What should I be doing? And the most typical response is something along the orders of, I'm not your teacher. I'm not supposed to, to tell you how to do it. Uh, I've been expl- living this my whole life. Uh, you figure it out for yourself, which is really kind of a cruel catch 22 to put people, uh, in that situation. It's like, um, I, you, it's like you tell them that they violated the rule, but you don't tell them how to avoid violating the rule in the future. And you don't even tell them what the rule is. And I gotta say, honestly, I, I kind of had an experience very similar to, uh, Yassine's growing up in, in elementary school. Um, I wasn't the, uh, the most physically capable. I, I had some, uh, slight but noticeable physical disabilities. Uh, I was good at academics. I had my own little interests, which were very different. There, there was just a lot of cruelty to it. And I, th- I think it's, it just, it just goes to, you know, that's the state of how, how kids grow up. Kids are not, they're not these noble savages. They are fundamentally amoral. And I think a lot of the, a lot of social justice comes out of trying to correct for these, um, these formative incidents, but they're doing it in a way that just, that just makes the problem worse. And they've become, in some senses, the very people that, that they started these movements to oppose. One slightly different thing here is that the learning rate of people who are neurodivergent is different. So they tend to not have a good theory of mind. So they don't pick up on these things in elementary school as easily. And they keep making these mistakes about, you know, the transgressions that they, that they don't understand. I mean, I've definitely noticed that in myself. Like I still, there's just all kinds of little details that other people notice about people. Like, you know, if their shoes match their, their clothes or something and people complimented on it. And I'm like, I didn't even notice that I would never notice in a thousand years that your shoes matched, you know, something like that. So many little like things about people like that, 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 uh, apparently you're supposed to notice, but I don't. So let's, let's say Miller's argument is valid and we move to accommodate neurodivergent people specifically with regards to speech codes. And let's say we get rid of speech codes entirely. Is there another accommodation that we can actually provide people on that are neuroatypical besides getting rid of the speech codes? I mean, making the speech codes more explicit would probably do the trick, I think. Although, if you do that, you'll have to write down some things that a lot of people don't really like to focus on in terms of what's allowed and what's not concretely. But that doesn't, I mean, the other concern that Miller pointed out is that the speech codes aren't enforced. They're not enforced uh, uniformly, yeah. Right. So he gives examples like it's okay to say, uh, I hate white males, but it's not okay to denigrate any other race. So then right. if you if you were to, spe- to spell it out, then it becomes this like bizarre exercise where you have to, you know, take into account power, relative power, history of oppression, uh, situational power, and then kind of put it in an equation and if you, if it's a positive value, I guess it's okay, or something to that effect. Yeah, and I think that's already the program that is that speech codes are are in effect being, and so it's if you make it explicit, I I, I think more people will see the just how ridiculous they are, hopefully. But right. if if not, or they or they rationalize it, but at least it would be explicit, and and that's a lot easier of a thing to engage with than these wishy-washy 
codes that say one thing and are enforced in a very different way. So I think that's why I, I don't find his argument to be completely genuine because yeah. realistically, it's impossible to spell out codes, at least the way they are enforced now, in a coherent manner. If if Miller can provide an example of what he wants the code to actually look like, and the codes would still reflect the understanding of how they're enforced nowadays, I would love to see that. But I don't, I don't think that's possible, and I think that's his his real argument. Well, I think it's very possible to spell out something that will approximate how the codes are enforced. It's just that it looks really bad for anyone trying to defend it as how the code should be enforced. This is the ultimate problem, is that speech codes are an attempt to apply rule ethics to speech and human conduct uh, at a university where people are in still in, in their peak formative and beginning to have this serious intellectual period in, the, in their lives. And you are, you are trying to regulate human conduct at the basis of rules, but you have completely given up on the teaching and inculcation of virtue, that, that there are things, rule ethics is uh, do A, B, and C, or you'll be punished. Virtue ethics is do A, B, and C, and this is why you should. Uh, we, American society, and, and I don't know if, if, if this can be generalized uh, to, to the broader world, but Americans, you know, especially in colleges, we're great at rule ethics. We are very, very bad at virtue ethics. So I'm reminded of an incident that happened in Duke University a few years ago where the campus was locked down and kind of put on edge because someone found a noose hanging from a tree. And they eventually found out that it was a foreign exchange student who put that noose on a tree and took a picture of it because he thought he was making a clever pun by sending it to his friends and saying, let's hang out. <laughs> and that's, I'm not making this up, so I'll, po I'll post the article. But... <laughs> <laughs> right, but, uh, but afterwards, so I don't think he was ever publicly identified, uh, but he wrote a letter, an open letter to the campus where he said, you know, I had no idea of the, the significance of the noose within American culture, especially, especially in the South. And I'm taking steps to remedy that. I'm reading these books. I apologize for any harm that I've caused. It was a fairly completely contrite letter. Uh, but uh, some of the activists that kind of led the protests in the beginning, they kind of, they, they explicitly did not accept the apology. And their response was essentially disbelief. Like, how could you not know that it, how offensive a noose is? And to me, it just, to me, it just like reflects an extremely narrow viewpoint where you assume that whatever you are familiar with or whatever you know, other people should know as well. The same kind of issue that is is discussed in the Miller piece about the need to be, you know, 100% accurate about all the nuance surrounding every issue would, fi would find itself in situations like this where you have a foreign exchange student that is not familiar with the cultural baggage of over everyday objects. Uh, they're not going to have the wherewithal or knowledge to avoid the, this type of behavior. Yeah. So one interesting place that these sorts of speech codes have started to get more concrete and explicit is in open source codes of conduct, uh, codes of conduct for open source projects, because, you know, it's a bunch of nerds. So they're going to want things to be very concrete. And then you end up with explicit rules that 
do look ridiculous, like saying that, you know, we will act on complaints about racism, but not about anything called reverse racism or cisphobia. And as soon as you see that in, in a code of conduct, it, it, you know, I, I can see it and just, you know, roll my eyes. It becomes clear to people just how, how inconsistent these, these codes of, of conduct really are. It sounds, I mean, the word Orwellian uh, as a descriptor is thrown around very often, but I'm getting very much the animal vibe feel like uh, that some animals, uh, that all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. It's, it's very much this. It's like, it's like our complaints are valid, but yours are just ridiculous and, and you're trolling. There is a, there is a failure. I think uh, there's, there's just basically a failure to talk and debate and discuss in good faith. Um, and you know, people, people saying what they think. I'm, rem- I'm reminded, uh, it's, I, I, I heard it from a guy who worked in, in network engineering. He's, he said, communication among people is just like communication among computers. Be conservative in what you say, but be liberal in what you hear. Yeah. Yeah. Be conservative in what you emit and be liberal in what you accept. Something like that. Yeah. So this this was this was in the context of communication systems having be able to um, having to have to uh, accept communications that don't meet their standards uh, and not completely crash when they get something like that. Right. So maybe like the arbitrariness of it is particularly poignant for someone that's neurodivergent, but I think that's something that affects everyone. Uh, but is it is it more apparent when you're neuro- neurodivergent because? your thinking is more later, literal? Is that like a, an unfair stereotype? I'm, because I'm not that familiar. I think Jeffrey Miller's argument was that people on the autism spectrum tend to be more systematizing. So they want a an overall framework to fit everything into, and they're less likely to compartmentalize. And so they'll notice, or or they, they won't notice when you when you have certain phrases about how to behave, they won't notice the exceptions that everybody else kind of implicitly gets because they think, oh, this is the system that I will now work in. So going back a minute, you said that we would accept uh, the argument about neurodiversity, but I want to go back and argue against that, which kind of the thing I mentioned in the beginning, that if we're going to repeal speech codes for autistic people or do some kind of mitigation of them from their current state, then why should it be for autistic people in particular? Like, suppose that someone isn't autistic, they're just kind of dumb and kind of a jerk in ways that lead to them violating speech codes and not being able to predict it. Should that person get accommodation? And if you want to make that question even stronger, you can attribute their jerk status to a mental health deficiency. If there's some behavior that is banned by a speech code, then first of all, if someone has a mental illness, which is recognized as making a person inclined to that behavior, should they get a pass? And if the answer to that question is yes, then why are we drawing the line at a behavior you can get an exemption for at only things that are recognized in the DSM. Think generally, if someone is considers themselves within kind of the social justice sphere, 
they generally do not ask for accommodations consistently. Some disabilities are more accommodatable than others. So, for example, if someone has mobility impairments, then it's generally understood that you'll advocate for ramps,、uh, elevators, or whatever other means that, to assist people with mobility impairment. But if someone is part of a marginalized group that isn't as sympathetic, then the advocacy is not going to be as strong, and it's just going to be ignored rather than acknowledging that this is a dissonance within the general、uh, position of advocating for those marginalized groups with disabilities. So, would a good example be someone with Tourette's who just、yeah. somehow they really can't control, or it's very very difficult for them to control blurting out、right. all、that's, kinds of yeah. That's an example, and I mean the one that I that I kept going back to is just you know someone is Muslim, <laughs> that that tends to be. <laughs> You're saying I, that's a disability. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I used to be Muslim. <laughs> If someone if someone has、uh, what you would consider problematic stances, like if they if they hate、uh, gay people, if they hate trans people, but they hate that hate comes because they're Muslim, then their position is harder to I guess argue against because it's one born directly out of being a member of a marginalized community. So the the social justice response has generally been to kind of ignore it. At least that's been my experience. And the only person, at least when I'm in a room full of activists, the only person that is willing to talk shit about the regressive traits of Islam has been me.、Uh, everyone else kind of gets really uncomfortable whenever I say anything negative about Islam, even when it's born out of experience, because they don't really know what to do. Yes, it's bad, but it's also a marginalized community. I don't know what to do. I don't know what stance to take. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah. So I agree that realistically. No one is actually going to accommodate mental illnesses in the way that we accommodate, say, being in a wheelchair. But my point is kind of that if you were to try to do that, then the whole enterprise would end up absurd very quickly. Because, like earlier, we talked about how attention deficit disorder gets you time extensions on classes for exams, and that's. Kind of silly because, like, the point of the exam is to measure not just your knowledge but your ability to regurgitate it under time constraints. And people with ADD are legitimately worse at that. They're the fact that they would score badly on a time test reflects that they are bad in the thing that the test is testing. And to give them a time extension is to undermine the entire point of the test. Similarly, the point of a speech code would be undermined by creating exceptions for people with mental illnesses that cause them to break the speech code. Like the speech code is not about policing people's intent, although it can sometimes feel like it. It's about policing what they actually say, what words come out of their mouth, and that doesn't matter whether you're mentally ill or not. Yeah, ba based on the based on the subjective damage, what what gets me is that there's this constant whipsawing between the maximum level of accommodation for all for all these people who have various、uh, disabilities, and at the same time, this maximalist tendency to make sure that the rules apply to everyone, no exceptions, strictly enforce them.、Uh, thou shalt not. 
Uh, and and it's it's just you keep going back and forth. There is no golden mean. There there is no uh, accommodation. It's, it's it's either one extreme or the other. And I can I can see why people who are heavy into systematizing and trying to find consistent rules would be frustrated with that system. Um, I'm not on the, on the spectrum myself, uh, but even I get frustrated with that sometimes. Is it actually true that the intent doesn't matter and that content? of speech is judged equally because I thought that it really depends on who is saying the thing that determines whether or not the speech is okay in a lot of cases in the actual enforcement of these speech codes. I think only in a narrow sense, like like apparently it's okay to talk shit about marginalized groups when you're part of that marginalized group. But I can't think of any other examples. It tends to be content focused rather than actor. So if it, if it was say like a Muslim man talking about how you know, women should be subservient to men and things along those lines. In that case, wouldn't a lot of the, like the social justice warrior crowd just kind of ignore that? Well, if it were a fundamentalist Christian man saying the exact same things for almost the exact same reasons, wouldn't they get much more upset about that? Yeah, potentially. But I mean, in both instances, they're not endorsing it. They're trying at least to avoid the situation. It's just much more awkward when it's a Muslim man. I would bet that the speech codes would be used against the Christian person almost all the time. Like, I, I would bet that the, the speech codes would be applied against the Christian person and not the Muslim person in actual practice almost all the time. I would I would be skeptical of that. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's like an unfalsifiable hypothesis that we're just kind of speculating. Yeah, I guess all the really Christian people I know don't live anywhere near San Francisco. <laughs> and And if you're... <laughs> If you're a Muslim and you end up in college, you you pretty much know better. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's true. Like no one's going to say something that regressive within within a crowd where they'll receive obvious pushback. Yeah, that's true. And it's pretty easy to just uh, kind of accuse. Like if it's a Muslim man, you just accuse patriarchy rather than Islam. You sidestep any uh, problematic uh, accusation. Oh, clever! Yeah. <laughs> Come on, get with it. This is simple stuff. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not on that level. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like some kind of weird D twenty IRL role playing. Uh, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's like we, it's, it's like I want to have a privilege jewel, or it's like you sure you're not on the spectrum? <laughs> you are talking about me, <laughs> Master Thief? Oh <laughs> no, not, not, not really. I, I just. Um, just I'm, I'm, I'm not, a, I'm seriously though, I'm not on the spectrum. I probably just spent way too much time around academia that is healthy. I, I guess maybe <laughs> it, it could have made me autistic. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that's why autism rates are going up because of increased yes. education. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm glad we solved this problem.